This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Solvaji. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. On October 28th, the White House and Democratic leadership in Congress announced a framework deal on the Build Back Better Act. The act includes federal spending of upwards of $3.5 trillion on broad social, environmental, and economic programs. To pay for this massive spending proposal, the act will make substantial changes to the nation's tax laws. Though being somewhat constrained by President Biden's campaign promise to never raise taxes on those earning more than $400,000 a year and razor-thin Democratic majorities in Congress, the new tax provisions seek to target large corporations and the ultra-high income earners. Taxing the rich and large corporations may offer a more politically palatable message but taxpayers deserve to know how its typical $4 trillion annual budget will now afford $3.5 trillion of additional spending. My guest today is Senior Policy Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and tax economist Kyle Pomerlo. Kyle's work at AEI re- focuses on the effects of current tax policy on the economy and works to understand the likely effects of future policy proposals. Kyle will share with us his analysis on what changes are likely to emerge from the Build Back Better Act, who is likely to pay more, and what are the possible effects on the economy in the future. When I return, I'll be joined by AEI Senior Fellow Kyle Pomelo. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by American Enterprise Institute's Senior Fellow and Tax Economist, Kyle Parmelo. Welcome to Hubwonk, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. I really wanted to have you as a guest here on, on Hubwonk because I want, you to help, uh, I want you to help our listeners understand uh, what's going, uh, uh, who's going to pay for this, uh, what we're calling the Build Back Better Act. Uh, it's an ambitious piece of legislation. Uh, we're told that there'll be new taxes, but uh, only on those making uh, more than $400,000 a year. That was President Biden's promise. And of course, we're, we're really going to particularly be targeting those uh, 700 or so billionaires uh, who are uh, fortunate among us. Uh, help us separate fact from fiction. Let's start with the acts features that are the most likely to generate the most revenue. Um, in my uh, let's say, amateur reading of, of what I can tell, it seems to be that that these minimum tax on all corporations' book profits are, are likely to uh, see the most short-term revenue. Explain uh, for our listeners, what does that mean and how does uh, collecting taxes on book revenue differ, differ from how we have historically taxed corporations? The, the, book proposed, the book tax was proposed as part of the Build Back Better as kind of a replacement for the corporate tax rate increase. Previously, they had proposed to raise the corporate income tax to 26.5%. However, a couple senators were uncomfortable with raising rates, um, corporate or individual, so those were taken off the table entirely. 
So what was added very recently, as recently as last week, was this minimum tax on, tax on book income. This was originally proposed by President Biden all the way back when he was running for president in November of 2019. And the way that this tax would work is that companies would have to calculate their taxes in two different ways each year. First, the ordinary corporate tax, and then second, this book tax. And under this book tax, companies would take the income that they report to their shareholders on their financial statement, make some adjustments to make sure there's no double taxation, also make adjustments for losses if companies had lost money in previous years, then multiply that by 15%, then subtract out a few credits, um, credit for foreign taxes paid, research and development credit, green energy credits. And knowing those two tax liabilities, the company has to pay the greater of the two. So if the corporate tax is greater than the book tax, they pay the ordinary tax and go on their way. But if the company's book tax is greater than the ordinary tax, they have to pay the diff that difference. Um, and that book tax liability is then tacked on top of the ordinary tax liability. And the, the purpose of this is um, to target the very largest multinational corporations in the United States that from year to year, at least on their financial statements, are uh, projecting to pay low effective tax rates. This addresses, I think, a popular, I, I won't call it a rhetorical myth, but this uh, popular um, chorus among some in, uh, in uh, public uh, uh, political leadership that there are lots of billion uh, dollar uh, corporations paying zero tax. This is essentially to address what's perceived to be uh, large companies getting away with no taxes in a given year. Is that roughly where this is coming from? Yeah, this is more perception than fact, definitely. Uh, the, the underlying driver of this is what tax people call book tax differences. Book income is calculated in a certain way to provide information to shareholders, you know, how the company's doing, what investments the company's making, um, what, it's, what it will look like um, potentially a few years from now. That's what book income is supposed to, the information book income is supposed to provide. Taxable income is meant to fairly levy taxes on corporations. And the way that these are calculated are entirely different. So you can have in many years, book income that shows po positive profits, but in some years taxable income that's very, very low. It causes this mismatch where you can have low effective tax rates on your book income. Now the mismatch can go the other way too, in that some years book income can be very, very low, but taxable income can be very, very high. And it shows the opposite, that these companies are paying very high effective tax rates, some 80 or 90% of their profits. And those numbers don't make very much sense either. So I, I usually caution people from looking at those effective tax rates on book income because they don't really tell us very much about what the effective tax burden on a company is. You really have to look over a number of years. You really have to study what provisions the companies are using um, or taking advantage of in the, in the federal tax code. Again, I want to address a myth about this no tax uh, billionaire corporation. Uh, I think the myth is that they get away with paying no tax by having very clever uh, tax attorneys and uh, accountants. 
Um, instead, uh, from what I know, uh, taxes, uh, corporations make profits and then have two choices. They can distribute those to their shareholders or they can reinvest it in the firm. If they do, the shareholders are happy to see that money um, essentially make the company they own uh, bigger. Uh, that would be a case of a large growth corporation. Uh, and if a, a company is more stable, uh, it may prefer to distribute those profits. So effectively, it's not that the company isn't paying uh, taxes on money distributed, but rather money retained and further invested in growth. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Another another piece of this too is that I think part of this conversation that bugs economists is that at the end of the day, corporations really don't pay tax, right? Corporations are legal entities. They're just collections of individual workers and shareholders that get together to produce a good or a service that other people then purchase. Ultimately, any money that the corporation is liable to pay in taxes that goes to the goes to the federal government is going to be taken out of individuals' pockets, whether those are the shareholders, so those are the owners of the the, the corporation, or the workers of those the, those corporations. Um, you, you can't really escape that that it's going to be people that bear the burden of these taxes, not um, legal entities. Yes, of course, and of course, uh, and again to preserve. Uh... Margins, uh, corporations also can raise prices to uh, to pay for taxes. So again, uh, corporations don't pay taxes. Uh, consumers, workers, and shareholders do. That's important. What would be a case of a, a firm that is going to likely be swept up or affected by a tax like this? I mentioned growth, but do you have names in mind of, uh, that our listeners would know? Yeah, don't want to speak to any specifics because I don't really know um the details of many of these companies, but the, the the proposal is meant to target companies like Amazon, Apple. These are very large corporations that are growing. Um, and you know, the reason why these companies may have low effective tax rates, Amazon, for example, is that if you're a company that makes a lot of investment, you're growing, you're going to be taking lots of deductions for those investments. And under the corporate income tax current law, a lot of the deductions you can take are very lar large upfront deductions for those new investments. Um, this was passed in 2017. It's called 100% bonus depreciation. Let's companies deduct the full cost of many investments upfront. And if you that compared to book income, for example, you're not allowed to make deductions that large. So there creates a mismatch. So when there's a company, a large company like Amazon that's growing quickly or making investments, that can drive down effective tax rates quite a bit. Um, so I think those are the those are the companies that these were these this uh, provision is is meant to go after. Um, after these myths, and I wanted to help see if we can throw one more away and say, okay, is if if it's the shareholders of these growth companies, these billion dollar growth companies that'll be affected. Is it billionaires who own billion-dollar companies, or uh, are there ordinary people who might be affected by this this tax? It, by and large, high-income households own more stock than low-income households. So, if you look across the entire distribution of the population, and you look at all the equity that people may own, a lot of it is concentrated in the high-income households. So, it is true to say that when you do raise the corporate income tax rate, you are disproportionately impacting high-income households. That said, taxing very large companies is not the same as targeting very high-income households. Because although most of the equities are owned by high income or high net worth households, that's not 
that's not a law. There are people across the income scale and wealth distribution that own equities. So attacks on corporation can also impact the retiree that earn, that lives off thirty thousand dollars of dividends from corporate stock. Um, so it it, re, it it really depends. An entity level tax is not is it's not going to be as well targeted as just raising tax rates on high income households. Now, uh, tax experts like you make a living on explaining to a layman like me uh, the complexity of taxes, but I, I haven't met too many tax experts who wouldn't prefer a a more simple uh, tax policy. Does does this tax uh, provision, uh, one that uh, looks at book rather than uh, traditional uh, uh, profits, um, does this simplify the tax code or does it move us, what I would say, in the wrong direction towards a far more complex uh, system of calculation? Yeah, it'll depend on who you talk to, but <laughs> I think um, regardless of whether it's an economist or a lawyer or an accountant, I don't know if there are very many people that like this idea of a book tax or a book minimum tax. Uh, it increases complexity because one, you're now calculating two taxes instead of one. Uh, two, it increases the number of credits that companies will have to track. Um, three, um, and this is a little bit more outside of complexity, but it is a downside. Book income is not determined by Congress. Book income is determined by rules put forth by FASB, um, which is a nonprofit organization that dictates accounting, accounting standards. Um, so when you raise some of your revenue from taxing book income, you're in essence outsourcing some of the revenue collections from Congress into a non-elected nonprofit body. Um, so that's not necessarily increase in complexity, but it is a concern that um, part of the tax code is no longer controlled by by Congress. Um, so I, I I think that overall this is that taxing book income is a step away from a simpler tax code. I, we all want to make sure that we are limiting the amount of deductions and credits that companies can take that are distortive, that are reducing the amount of taxes they should pay. But I, I would always prefer to just go directly at them, scale them back, um, repeal them outright as a way to increase the tax burden on corporations, not to enact a parallel tax that runs alongside the ordinary corporate tax. So a more simple plan that affects everyone equally rather than a complex plan that uh, um, is, is difficult to follow and, and, and has businesses uh, making decisions based on tax implications rather than business implications. Yeah, and then that's another really good point, too, that we know that corporations adjust their taxable income in, fit in the face of taxation. Um, individuals will try to take as many deductions or companies will try to take as many deductions and credits as they can. Companies also um, use some uh, accounting maneuvers to shift profits from the United States to overseas to reduce their tax liability. That taxing book income is going to translate that behavior right over to book income. So there's also a concern that taxing book income is going to reduce the quality of financial statements, that we're not going to really get a good, a perfect sense of how well these companies are, are doing, because to some extent, the profits that they're reporting to their shareholders are somewhat dictated by the fact that they're taxed on them. Now, I've heard, um, again, political leaders assert that our, our taxes are corporations are undertaxed 
I guess what they mean by that is relative to the rest of the world. How, how do the U.S. Uh, uh, tax rates compare with, uh, let's say, our largest competitors? This is a complex issue, um, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't really... So look at just one statistic, and some of the statistics are outright misleading. Now, if you look at statutory tax rates, just how much companies pay on each additional dollar of profits, the United States is about average, maybe a little bit above average. You look at the federal rate of 21% plus state and local rates, that's about 25.8%. The OECD average is around 25%. So we're right around average there. Now, if you look at effective tax rates, however, the story changes a little bit. We actually place a slightly higher tax burden on investment in the United States than other countries do. So if you look at how much, say, if a company wants to invest in a new machine, how much is that machine going to have to pay in taxes over the life of that asset? That, that tax is a little bit higher in the United States than the average of the OECD. Then the third piece is sometimes the administration, for example, likes to compare corporate tax collections as a percent of GDP in the United States to corporate tax collections as a percent of GDP in other countries. And that statistic generally shows we're at the bottom of the list, where we are collecting the least amount of revenue as a percent of GDP. Now, I caution against using that statistic because the size of each corporate sector in each country is different. In the United States, for example, we have a huge sector of non-corporate businesses or what are called pass-through businesses. These are S-corporations, partnerships, LLCs. These are businesses that pay taxes through the individual income tax. And we, in the vast majority of businesses in the United States are pass-through businesses. Only about 5% of businesses are corporations. In contrast, other countries, their corporate sectors are huge. They, they have much higher individual income tax rates and much lower corporate tax rates. So most of their activity is in the corporate form over in other countries. So you can't really directly compare collections as a percent of GDP without making adjustments for the size of the pass-through sector. And I, in a recent piece, I did that. And once you do that, you find that the United States is a little bit above average in terms of its burden on corporations. So... <laughs> Make a long answer short here. It's it's complicated, but we're we're probably above, right around average or a little bit above average under current law. And the and the situation you described really is a function of the fact that um, most wise uh, business owners don't want to be taxed twice, and so therefore don't create the corporate entity that gets taxed once. Once you the corporation makes the profits and then distributes the profits, and then the 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 owner gets taxed twice when he when he receives the income. So that's the reason we have such a small corporate sector, as you described. Yeah, yes. Com companies, uh, when when individuals are looking at which business legal form of organization to take, they're going to look at the all-in tax burden, whether it's pass-through business um, or a corporation. And I, th I think you're right, all things considered, the tax burden on corporations, slightly higher than it is under a pat pass-through form, especially after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, and I think that that tilts the scale towards that. And that is one of the reasons why um, our, yeah, our corporate sector is, is smaller at the end of the day. So I want to shift our focus to uh, another provision. I think this is fairly recent and it's almost mind-blowing uh, to imagine this. This um, I've heard it called the Zillow tax, this um, notion that we would tax um, uh, unrealized gains in addition to realized gains. And, um, you know, for our listeners, I think everyone knows what a realized gain is. You sell something, you make a profit and you 
that, that profits realized. Unrealized is an asset that's appreciated uh, notionally, but not uh, actually. Now you've not sold it, so uh, it's only worth what uh, someone will pay for it in the future. How is it, or you know, what are the the details of this 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 tax, and and how will it be implemented? Yeah, so th- I don't even. Uh, so this was actually uh, last week big debate over this mark to market proposal, and I think well we'll see. Um, it's al- already rumblings that this is going to be dropped. I think a lot of some lawmakers uh, are uncomfortable with it. But the the way that the proposal was going to work is that. For taxpayers with $1 billion in net worth or $100 million in earnings on average over three years would be pushed into this mark-to-market regime. And that instead of being taxed on capital gains when you sell your asset, these taxpayers would be taxed on capital gains each year as the asset appreciates in value. So you'd be switching from the realization to the mark-to-market system. so the, the, in the reason that they wanted to go about this or why they wanted to go about this is that they feel that for very, very high income and high net worth households, the value of deferral, the ability to defer your capital gains is very large. And a lot of taxpayers may be able to borrow money to finance their consumption instead of realizing their capital gains and totally avoid taxation on this income. So that's the argument for why they wanted to go to go about this. We didn't really get a good sense of how much this tax would raise. I think some people suggested it would be somewhere between 200 to 300 billion dollars over a decade. That number seems to make sense to me. It would only be affecting about 700 people uh, in the United States. Um, so even even though in theory it could impact the the appreciation of someone's house. It would only be impacting the appreciation of, say, Jeff Bezos's house or Elon Musk's house. But again, I don't want to go too deep into this because, as you say, it's it's it may not happen after all. Uh, but isn't this just carrying bringing forward a revenue that you will ultimately collect when that that asset is sold in the future? I mean, uh, it's not as if it's it, you know falls off the the register forever. It ultimately everything gets sold or disappears. Um, how how, uh, how do you account for the fact that you're essentially drawing future taxes forward to present taxes? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So there are two, two pieces to this. So one of them has to do with the treatment of capital gains when the owner of those assets passes away. So uh, under current law, if you hold on to an asset and it appreciates over your lifetime, you pass away and then pass that asset on to your heir, that asset's basis is stepped up to market value at the point of your death. So what that means is that all of the appreciation through your life is not subject to tax. So it gets a big exemption. And this is one of the concerns I think Democrats are trying to address is that if you're very, very wealthy, the strategy you'd want to use is to just not sell your assets because you don't want to realize your capital gains. And then eventually you pass those assets on to your heir and all of that tax that could have been collected if you sold the asset would would go away. It would be exempt from taxation. Uh, the second piece is that the to the federal government, there's an aspect of time value of money. Now you are right that if an asset appreciates over time and I sell it in the future, I'm still getting taxed. But to the federal government, they'd rather have that revenue each and every year rather than delaying it several years. And to them, the value is not 
all that different because interest rates on debt are not that high. Um, the government can borrow at below 2% effectively, but there is a slight difference in timing in that the government, from the government's perspective, they'd rather collect the revenue now than later. From the taxpayer's perspective, they rather pay the tax later than pay it now. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, but that, that asset is not sitting uh, uh, in the ground. It's, it's appreciating and, and giving people jobs and uh, creating uh, new opportunities. Yeah, that's an, that's another piece too. Is that a lot of these assets are uh, are are capital assets? They're claims on ownership to productive corporations that produce goods and services, and that if you are own a share in ExxonMobil, for example, the dividends you get are net of any corporate tax that's being paid, um, or if you own a a a stock, an Apple stock, and it's appreciating, its appreciation is partially based on the corporate taxes that Apple has to pay. So there is still tax being paid every single year. It's just the entity level tax, um, not the additional individual income tax. So the appreciation uh, is, uh, as you say, after tax appreciation. So yes. that's an important, important yep. uh, detail. All right, I, wanna, I don't want to dwell on that uh, feature. Uh, are there any um, traditional income taxes? You said much is off, off the uh, off the board. We uh, at the outset, uh, some members in Congress didn't want additional uh, raising of taxes on corporations or income. What what's still in there? So there, there are a few pieces that are more traditional individual income tax increases or kind of conventional income tax increases. Um, so there is a, the Build Back Better proposal has a, a new surtax on adjusted gross income for households. Um, so under this provision, uh, taxpayers with $10 million in adjusted gross income would face a 5% surtax on income over that threshold, an 8% surtax on income over $25 million. Um, so very, very high income households would face this additional tax on all of their sources of income, wages, business income, capital gains, dividends, interest, they would all face this additional tax. This tax... I think in a way is a replacement to the mark to market proposal. This this surtax is supposed to raise about 200 to 250 billion dollars and target roughly the same the same households, households that have very very high income that might be earning some of their income from capital gains and dividends. Now we here in Massachusetts have been contemplating a change in our constitution that would allow for we have a, a mandate of a flat tax, but uh, we're considering changing our, our tax code to allow for a, a surtax on income um, uh, on very high earners. Uh, we've established that it's, it's rare that someone makes uh, this kind of money often, and more often than not, a $10 million income is, is going to be reflected by someone who's, who's built a business, uh, uh, retained a lot of the earnings, uh, and has a liquidity event that puts them over, let's say, the $10 million threshold, but just once. Uh, is there um, is this money purely over the ten million, or would it you know go back to dollar one? Uh, and who who do you think is it, is likely to, to pay these kinds of taxes? Yeah, th this is oh, this is a, a a marginal tax rate, so it's over mm -hmm. the threshold. Yeah, I, I think it would be an entirely different animal if they were thinking of of, of taxing uh, inframarginal dollars below that. Um, so th this type of in this type of tax it's broad so it's going to hit wage earners so those that earn very very high wages for one reason or another um, this could this could hit business owners 
um, those that earn those past earn profits from those pass-through businesses we were talking about, this surtax would apply to them. Um, it would also hit um, some returns to corporations as well, because it's going to apply to capital gains and dividends. Those uh, those forms of income are the returns to those investments. So it's a, it's a broad tax that's going to hit all that income. Now, to the extent that, that those higher taxes are going to discourage productive activities, whether it's working, saving, and investment, that could have additional effects on the economy than just the direct effects on those that are paying the tax. If you're a business owner and you're facing a higher tax rate, that may increase your cost of capital or your cost of investing in new in new projects. And that could have an impact on the productivity of your firm. That could have an impact on the amount you can pay your workers and the amount that you can hire. Of course. Now, let's uh, take a step back. Let's change our focus. We estimate, although that's even that is not um, uh, certain, uh, this bill or this act will be... Uh, uh, will cost roughly three and a half trillion dollars. That's a lot of zeros. Um, have you been able to estimate, given all the provisions of the revenue that we've described here, how much money will this bring in? Uh, yeah, good, good question. So right, so right now there's still a lot in flux on the spending side. They're still negotiating. The three point five is that top line number that Biden really wanted. Recent news has stated that it could be as low as 1.5 or 1.75 billion, uh, trillion dollars over that period. So anywhere in between. Now on the revenue side, again, unclear um, because we don't know exactly what provisions are going to be in there. But if we add up all the provisions that are currently in Build Back Better, this is probably a tax increase between one and a half to $1.75 trillion over a decade. Um, and you know, to give a sense, that's roughly the same size as the, uh, the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, that was passed in, in late of 2017 in terms of its, its scale, or at least in dollar value. Now, the taxpayers and impacts are totally different. Um, this $1.75 trillion is coming primarily or almost exclusively from very high-income households. The TCGA was a broader tax cut, so it's not a perfect comparison. But just to give you a sense of scale, we're talking about roughly the same dollar figure there. So what, what the uh, earlier act reduced taxes, this replaces. Uh, and if we use the low end range of the estimate of the, the spending here, it will roughly, it will not be free as some assert, but will pay for itself if, if the revenue estimates and the spending estimates on the low end uh, add up, it will pay for itself. Yeah, it, it will be it will be financed insofar as taxes will cover spending. I don't know many people that call that as being costless um, because taxpayers will be have it will will need to pay for that. Um, and any spending that isn't directly financed by increased taxes is going to increase the federal debt, which means that there is a future liability that taxpayers will need to cover. Indeed, uh, the government, I, I'd like to point this out, it seems trivial, but the government doesn't have its own money. It only has uh, our money uh, so that if this tax revenue does not meet the expenditures, it's either, you know, we we call for additional taxes now or additional taxes in the future. That's the only yeah. choices we have. And po politically, we don't know um, how comfortable any given lawmaker is with borrowing. Uh, we know that some may be comfortable, but you know, if if they come up short, that may mean that spending has to come down a little bit in order for them to get the votes that they need to pass this. 
Now we're, we're um, the last couple of years now with the, the pandemic, uh, the federal government spent quite a bit of money, roughly $6 trillion extra trying to sort of uh, ensure that the economy doesn't uh, suffer any more damage than it already had. Um, that's in addition to it, you know, what historically has been about a $4 trillion uh, federal budget. Uh, we owe a lot of money at this point. Um, you're a tax expert. Uh, if we were trying to uh, be responsible about um, uh, paying for what we spend, uh, if you're king for a day, I like to ask our experts these kinds of questions. What, what types of taxes do you think would both raise revenue, uh, but also not distort economies? And in other words, not discourage investment growth, uh, jobs, all the things we like uh, uh, at AEI and, and at Pioneer. What would you recommend? Yeah, the, the, this is a really broad question, of course. I, my, <laughs> my, my initial reaction here is that it's not it, it's not going to just be from tax revenue. I think eventually lawmakers are going to have to do something um, to balance things, and it's probably going to be a combination of reduced spending and increased taxes. Now, if I had a seat at the table or I could just decide. Um, I think that if I were to raise additional revenue, it would be probably be from one, broadening the income tax base. So there's currently a lot of income that isn't taxed under the individual income tax. For example, one of the biggest sources of that is compensation I or you may receive from your employer in the form of health insurance premiums. Um, paying for those health insurance premiums, that's a form of income that is being that people are earning that is kind of like wages, should be taxed like wages. Um, but that's just one example. Another tax or a couple of taxes that I would consider are um, additional sources of revenue. I think the Fed, United States should consider a value added tax to be a federal level, um, uh, roughly a sales tax. Um, these are very broad-based taxes. They're used through most of the world, um, and they are, um, relative to other taxes, very little distortion on the economy. Um, and a tax of 5% could raise quite a lot of revenue um, for the federal government to close some of this gap. Hmm. So value-added tax. I've, I've heard that proposed. In fact, I'll, I'll share a little secret. I may cut this out later, but uh, a, um, a very progressive economist I met at the Kennedy School talked about the, the power of value-added taxes, enormous revenue potential. But right now, Democrats see it as a uh, regressive tax, um, uh, so they don't like it. And Republicans see it as a, uh, an enormous uh, uh, revenue uh, yeah. uh, opportunity for tax. Uh, but when uh, he said if Democrats realized it was an enormous opportunity for taxes, and Republicans realize it was regressive, they might actually meet in the center and, and agree on it. Uh, what do you imagine the probability of a value-added tax ever come, seeing the light of day? Yeah, I, I've, today, very low chance. But I, I think at some point, something has to give. I, I, at, at, in the future, the federal government is going to face some tough choices. Some of those choices in the absence of revenue may include cutting Social Security benefits, or Medicare benefits. And I think politically, you know, if you're going to choose, are we going to raise a broad-based tax um, modestly or place a significant, uh, potentially significant burden on current um, recipients of retirement benefits? I, I think that they they would probably lean more on the value-added tax than drastically cutting benefits. I, I know that's probably a sad thing for um, proponents of lim limited government to hear, um, but there are only so many things that, um, or 
there's only so many things that are possible politically. Um, and I, th I think that, you know, smaller reforms are more likely than very large ones. Um, and, you know, in the future, I think an, an additional source of revenue like a VAT could be part of a smaller, more modest reform to balance the get, it, get closer to balancing the budget. Well, I'm relieved neither of us is uh, intending to run for office anytime soon. Uh, you <laughs> proposed raising taxes on healthcare plans, I presume also on maybe the uh, mortgage deduction. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a yeah. That that would be another one that the, I, I, you could at least start by capping the value and only impacting high income households. I'm actually somewhat surprised that lawmakers this time around didn't try to limit itemized deductions for very high income households. In fact, lawmakers are thinking about expanding itemized deductions for high income households by eliminating the state and local tax deduction cap of $10,000 that was passed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Right. That's amazing to me that Democrats propose something like that, which would be sort of a naked giveaway to, you know, high earners in high tax states. It's uh, you're getting a tax subsidy to pay state taxes. It, it, it seems, uh, you know, impossible, but that's how it is. Um, okay, well, we're uh, almost out of time. Uh, I appreciate uh, this very deep conversation. I hope our uh, our listeners stuck with us. Uh, there's a lot to learn about this, uh, this new act. Uh, and uh, you've been very, very informative, a great guest, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would help if you offer us a five-star rating or a favorable review. Naturally, we're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me or suggestions or comments about future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me via email at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode 